Holy Jesus, we come before You tonight excited and anticipating Your Word to us. Your Word spoken directly to Your followers 2,000 years ago with implications that impact us today. It is always exciting for us, Lord, to, to read Scripture and to actually see what You talk about happening around us. Lord, we are in the time, we believe, of contractions, birth pangs. We see such an intensification of the signs that You called out. We see a greater frequency of them. We see things being stirred up in the world. And in a good way, Lord, that excites us. We can't wait to see Your coming. To hear Your voice calling us home. But on the downside, Lord Jesus, we recognize that means pain in this world and and heartache tribulation and we know even now there are a lot of hurting people and it's not your desire to see people hurt oh God of compassion we pray would you pour out your compassion into our hearts we tonight have have prayed Lord for people who don't know you we have lifted up prayers of evangelism prayers of the gospel prayers of desire to see people saved accepting and believing in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, You will motivate us through these prayers. You will move us out of these chairs and into these relationships. Bring us, Lord, to these people we have just prayed for. That we might have an impact. That we might speak Your name into their lives. We pray, Father, that until You come, we would not just be sitting around, but we would be actively engaged in this world. Engaged, Father, with the gospel of truth. We pray tonight for truth and ask Your Holy Spirit to teach us and guide us through these amazing words about an amazing time. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 24. By my calculations, it's Tuesday night. That is, when Jesus gave what we call the Olivet Discourse. Tuesday night of the last week of Jesus, Matthew 26, verse 1 says, When Jesus had finished all these words, He said to His disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. So we can deduce from that that the Olivet Discourse, this conversation that Jesus had with four of His apostles, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, there on the Mount of Olives, we can conclude this happened late on a Tuesday night, and there on this still starlit night, I can just imagine, can't you imagine being there with Him? Being one of the four, or maybe being a fly on a tree nearby, and listening in to what is being talked about and what Jesus is sharing there on the Mount of Olives. There on the eastern edge of Jerusalem, I can imagine sitting there and looking across and seeing not just the Temple Mount, I've seen that, seeing the Temple raised up there, and amazed that not one stone was going to be left upon another, and curious. And so Jesus begins to teach. And as we've already seen, about halfway through now, the, the great Olivet Discourse, He has answered some questions. Peter, James, Andrew, and John, they want to know what's going on. They want some insight into the future. And they know Jesus is the one to give it to them. And so He begins to teach in no uncertain terms. A couple of things to jot down, just by way of reminder. First of all, He gives a concise chronology of the last days. A concise Chronology. This does not have to be difficult to understand. Matthew 24, like Daniel chapters 9, 10, 11, and 12, like Revelation chapter 1 through 22, 
These are not things that are there to be hard to understand. I reject the notion that Revelation is a hard book. As much as I reject the notion that Matthew 24 has to be difficult, it doesn't. It's very simple if we'll just approach it simply. Now, if we want to force it into the box of our own religious tradition, it will become difficult to understand. You know, if we want to allegorize it or, or make it speak in metaphors of other wild things that Jesus is not saying, it will be difficult to understand. But Jesus gives a simple chronological outline. I gave it to you Sunday. Let me give it to you again so you know what you're following here. In verse 2, Jesus foretells the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Not one stone will be left upon another. Then in verses 4 through 8, in answer to some of the apostles' questions, Jesus begins to explain the birth pangs. Sign times intensity times frequency. What we talked about last week. These signs have always been here. But the more they intensify and the more frequent they come, the closer we are to the end, just like a woman in labor pains. Very simple. These are the times leading up to the tribulation at the end. Let me say that again. These are the times leading up to the tribulation at the end. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Some would not agree with me, but I believe we are in the times of the birth pangs and they are coming with greater frequency and intensity. Then, next on the outline, verses 9-14, through 14, Jesus begins to describe the tribulation. A seven-year period of time. We talked about that in depth on Sunday. In verse 15, following to verse 28, He then gives the sign of the great tribulation. And that sign is what the prophet Daniel called the abomination of desolation. Daniel 9 and Daniel 11. You can go back and listen to Sunday if you weren't here and and pick that up. We talked at length about the tribulation, the great tribulation, the abomination of desolation. A lot of shuns things to be shunned. Okay, Shunned by faith in Jesus Christ because you do not want to be here and go through those times. I shudder at the bravado Christian who says, No, I want to stand and fight. (laughs) Have fun. I want to escape. I want to skedaddle. I want to be with Jesus. Verses 29 through 31, then Jesus describes his own glorious appearing. So that's the chronology. Verse 2 is the fall of Jerusalem. Verses 4 through 8, the birth pains. Verses 9 through 14, the beginning of the tribulation. First three and a half years or so. Verse 15 through 28, the great tribulation kicks off with the abomination of desolation. And then finally, in verses 29 through 31, Jesus describes His glorious return. It just follows right in line. See how simple that is. Now there will be a change once we get to verse 32, which we will in a moment tonight, because Jesus turns and begins to teach in a different direction. He begins teaching in parables for a specific reason. But up to verse 31, it's that simple chronology of the last days. Now, someone might say, hasn't every generation claimed to be the last days? I mean, didn't it happen around the year 1000 AD? And then, of course, again in 2000. Hasn't every generation, time after time, said, oh, we're living in the last days. We're living in the... Didn't Paul say something about they were living in the last days? Didn't Peter and the boys believe that 2,000 years ago? The Apostle John in 1 John 2.18 wrote, Children, it is the last hour. Now, if you were to read that literally, you'd say, Wow, it's the last hour? Then we don't have much time left here. The word hour that John chooses to use is interesting. It's aura. It can mean hour, but it most often means season. Children, this is the last season. The season kicked off by the ascension of Jesus back into the heavens, by the inauguration of the church. We are in the last season. 
There have been different seasons in the history of the world. We're in the last one, according to John. Strong's Concordance says that word aura, season, is a certain definitive time or season fixed by natural law and returning with the revolving year. So, for an apostle, for the Bible to say we are in the end times, and for that to have been spoken 2,000 years ago, that's true. Because 2,000 years ago began the beginning of the end times. But mark this. There is an end to the end times. There is a last day of the last days. There is a precipice on which I believe we now stand. Not unlike the precipice, Mount Precipice, on the edge of Nazareth, which is a lookout over the Valley of Megiddo, a huge, amazing, amazing view there, a panorama of the entire valley. We stood up there and it freaked Cheryl out as I was teaching because my back was to the valley behind me and a few steps back and I'd be like, bye-bye, you know. She kept going... You know, and Art McKinnon on that same trip, he went out and sat on a rock just hanging out over the edge. Cheryl couldn't even look at him. But we are on a similar precipice, gang, and we are looking now over into the next season of God's prophetic calendar. That's what the rest of Matthew 24 is. It's a look into the next season, the next thing that God has planned to happen. So, along with this concise chronology of the last days, beginning in verse 32, Jesus will speak a clarion call to readiness. A clarion call to readiness. First he gives the outline, and then he begins to say, boys, you've got to be ready. Church, you've got to be ready. Do not live lives that are passive, sitting back, thinking it will never come. You live ready. Part of the reason Jesus didn't put a time signature on the last days, except for birth pangs, was that every generation of the church would live as if it was the last. That we would live with that dynamic, with that motivation. You know, it's one thing to pray about someone getting saved if you think they've got 40 or 50 years left. It's another thing to pray about someone getting saved if they're lying on their deathbed in the hospital. That's motivation. That's the kind of praying we need to be doing for every single person who doesn't know Jesus. No matter how young, how old, how healthy, how sick, everybody needs to hear about Jesus. There is an urgency in Jesus' words here. In the parallel passage of Luke 21, verse 36, Jesus said, Keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Well, I want to go back. I want to pick up a little bit before we left off on Sunday, beginning with what Paul calls the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. We kind of zoomed through the glorious returning, the glorious appearance of Jesus on Sunday, mainly because I didn't want to leave you on a, on a downside. I want to bring you up a bit. So let's look at verse 29 and following. Verse 29, Matthew 24. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light And the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Our Jewish Messiah, speaking to his Jewish followers about Jewish things, now draws off a great Jewish prophecy. He's quoting directly out of Isaiah 13. Beginning about verse 9, Isaiah writes, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger. That word cruel is also fierce. If you have trouble thinking about God as being cruel... The word indicates a fiercity with fury and burning anger. To make the land a desolation, He will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. 
Thus I will punish the world for all its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. Isaiah 13, verses 9 through 11. This will be an intense end to an intense time. So we saw Sunday, the tribulation gets worse and worse and worse. And about halfway through, the abomination of desolation is set up in the temple, an idol. And from that point following, it just breaks loose completely. All the way down to the very end, to those moments before Jesus comes, when the world is spinning literally out of control, and Jesus shows up to establish His righteous rule. There's one word that stuck out to me more than the others in this verse, talking about the, the heavens... The stars not giving light and falling from the sky and the sun being dark and the moon being dark says the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now I did what I do with stuff like this. I went to commentary after commentary after commentary to get some sense of the meaning of the word powers and and what it is indicating here and nobody says anything about it. Everybody kind of skipped over it. Wimps. I mean, come on. Give me something I can work with here. The word powers, gang. In the Greek, it's the word dunamis. That is the same word that Jesus says will be given to the apostles by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1. You shall wait in Jerusalem until you receive power, dunamis, from on high. It's an active power. It speaks of something spiritual. And I believe what Jesus is saying here, and this is just Rick's opinion, but when he says the powers of the heavens will be shaken, I believe he is speaking about spiritual powers. I believe he is speaking about Not good, but evil spiritual powers. What would make you think that? Let me give you two verses. Ephesians 6.12 Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. You know this verse, many of you. But against the rulers, against the powers. Same word. Against the world forces of this darkness. Against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. When Jesus comes, the very powers in the heavens, the principalities, will be shaken. What do you mean principalities? If you were to read in the book of Daniel, chapter 10, you'd read an interesting story. Daniel is praying. spends about three weeks on his bed in anguish, praying and receiving no answer. Which is interesting because in Daniel, chapter 9, he prays, and three seconds later, Gabriel's there to talk to him about several things that we've already looked at. But suddenly now, Daniel is aching in prayer. He is laboring in prayer, and he's getting no response whatsoever. But after three weeks, finally Gabriel shows up and he says, it's so good that you were praying. Because for me to get through, I I got stuck battling the prince of Persia. This principality, a demonic power that Gabriel could not get through to get to Daniel. And Gabriel says he had to call on Michael, the archangel, to come fight with him just so he could break through and get down and answer Daniel's prayer. Oh, well that's, that's just stuff from Daniel's day. That doesn't happen today, does it? You think the principalities just went away? Principalities are demonic forces, demonic presence, demonic rulers that are in different areas. Satan has an army of sorts. He has an organization to it. Is there a principality over Whidbey Island? I tend to think there is. One that when we gather as a fellowship in prayer together, as we've already done tonight, we start to bust through. A light shears through that. And prayers can be answered. Anyway, I totally went off course there. But there are spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places and the powers will be shaken. But check this verse out. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. 
For if those did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from Him who warns from heaven. And His voice shook the earth then. But now He has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Check that out. You might just note that as a parallel verse to Jesus saying the powers of the heavens will be shaken, Hebrews 12.25-29, there is going to be a shaking. And those shakable things will fall apart, will flee away from His presence. But we are receiving something unshakable. We are receiving a kingdom, Jesus says. The Hebrew writer indicates. And though the powers will be shaken, we're receiving a kingdom unshakable. You know, you might in your life get shaken from time to time. (laughs) Things happen to us and it rattles us. It freaks us out. And it could be something as serious as a a medical situation or it could just be some guy on a freeway waving a gun at you. (laughs) That'll shake you up. That didn't happen to me, so... In case you were wondering where that came from, I don't know. It just popped out. (laughs) But we are receiving something unshakable. A kingdom that no power, no force, no principality can withstand. And Jesus is bringing it. So He says the powers of the heavens will be shaken. In verse 30 He says, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. They'll see the sign. That word sign is Simeon. Or Simeon. It means a sign, a wonder, an unusual or supernatural occurrence. Man, the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is not the rapture that he's talking about. We'll get there tonight. (laughs) Wouldn't that be great if we did get there tonight? I mean, really? But we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But this is what happens after the tribulation. Based on my understanding of the biblical record, the rapture happens before the tribulation because we are not destined for wrath. As we've talked about, 1 Thessalonians 5.9. But for salvation. So the rapture happens, then the tribulation, and then the second coming of Christ in this great supernatural occurrence. Jesus is going to return to this earth visibly, physically, and even geographically, right back to Israel. I love this. In Acts chapter 1, we have the scene of Jesus' ascension back up to the heavens. And Peter and James, John, Andrew, all the, all the apostles are there. And they're, they're standing there and they're just watching. And they're just watching. And He's gone. And they're watching. And I just, I love God's M.O., the way He moves. Suddenly two men in white are standing there with them. We've we got to assume they're angels. Two guys dressed all in white. And it says, As they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, what do you stand looking up into the sky for? I can almost imagine the angels having some fun with us, just kind of walking up and standing there beside them. <laughs> what are you guys doing here? And then they say these words. This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched Him go into heaven. 
What do you mean the same way? Visibly. You will see Him. The world will see His great return. And there will be worldwide mourning as a result. What's the source of this mourning? What's the source of of the world? Literally this outcry. Two things. Some will recognize their fate in the return of Jesus. Their mourning is going to be from terror and abject fear. Those who have cast off Jesus, those who who have mocked the whole Christian thing, those who have made fun and kind of kick that around, are going to see Jesus and will recognize their faith. That it's all true. And they will mourn. Second Thessalonians 1.7 says, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. And in that moment, I'm guessing that recognition of truth is just going to set in and people will mourn. No! No! If that's upsetting, it should be. If there's any one thing in our lives that should remain as a burden on our hearts as followers of Jesus Christ, it's people who are lost. That should weigh us down. That should concern us. And we should be constant in prayer for them. But there will be another group of people mourning. Those who mourn because they recognize their faith, but others will mourn because they realize their faith. And I'm talking about the remnant of Israel, who will be mourning from sorrow and repentance. Along with possibly, if if there are any left, those surviving saints, people who give their life to Jesus during the tribulation, If there's anyone who survives outside of that remnant of Israel, these will all be mourning over who He is and over what they missed. What do you mean what they missed? I mean the fact that they'll realize Jesus is Mashiach, Messiah, the Anointed One. It was Jesus after all. And for all these years, we missed the opportunity of walking with Him. Those of you who have... I've had this conversation with Spencer. The one thing Spencer says about coming to Jesus later in his life is the fact that he missed all those years with Jesus prior to it. The years now, walking with Jesus, wonderful. But all those years before. And there is a sense of mourning when you realize, I could have been having this a long time now. But I didn't know. The Jewish people will be mourning. But an even greater mourning because they're going to recognize, the Bible tells us, those will recognize Him who they pierced. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. I'll just read this to you. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. You notice the English there? I mean, that's our best translation. Isn't that interesting? They'll look on me whom they've pierced, and they'll mourn for him as if mourning for an only son. You hear the the identification Father has with Son. That to look at Jesus and mourn Him who they pierced is to look also at God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The connection is intense. They will weep bitterly over Him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there there will be great mourning in Jerusalem. Like the morning of Hadadramon in the plain of Megiddo. What's that? I'll tell you another time. Verse 12, the land will mourn. Listen to this. Every family by by itself. 
The family of the house of David by itself. Why? Because Jesus is in the line of David and it was David's son who was pierced. And so the house of David is listed and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself. Why Nathan? Because it was through David's son Nathan, not Solomon, but through Nathan that the line came all the way down through Mary reaching to Jesus. The family of the house of Levi, the priestly family, by itself, and their wives by themselves. The family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves. All the families that remain. Every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. This will be a great morning throughout all of the remnant of Israel when they recognize Him who they pierced. But then on this great and glorious day, back in Matthew 24, the Lord will achieve a final regathering of all His people Israel. Watch this, verse 31. And He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together His elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. This is a tricky verse. There are those who who look at it and they see the word elect, which if you remember, elect, the elect. In the context, the elect is not talking about the church. The elect, the chosen ones, is talking about Israel. So, so far, when he's said, for the sake of the elect, back in verse 22, those days will be cut short. When he says, there will be false Christ in verse 24, and false prophets who will show great signs, and so as to mislead even the elect, he's talking about Israel. So now, all of a sudden, he says, I'm going to send forth angels to gather the elect from the four winds. So we assume that's still Israel. And yet, the wording's interesting. I'm going to gather them from the four winds. From one end of the sky to the other. Could this possibly be talking about the rapture of the church? I just kind of throw that little carrot out there and I'm going to pull it right back and say no. (laughs) I don't think it is. I think we are still dealing with specifically the ingathering of Israel here. When the phrase is used from the four winds... Uh, from one end of the sky to the other. It's, it's real similar to the phrase that we use, the four corners of the earth. Now, there are not four corners. And if you look for the four corners of the earth, they're very difficult to find. You keep looking, and ultimately it's just a big round ball hung in the heavens. So there are not corners on the earth. In the same way, there aren't the four winds, but the phrase indicates going to the vast sum of the entire earth and regathering all those of Israel, of that, of that remnant. He's pulling them all back Together, But there's another possibility here, or a further possibility, I should say. When it says why from, he says from one end of the sky to the other, the possibility is that the elect will also include all previous Hebrew saints who had already died in faith in God. Prior to Jesus' coming, prior to the crucifixion, those who are finally at this time gathered to receive the promise that God made to Abraham all those years ago. The promise to come back in the land, resurrected on that day, to come back in the land and gather together. As the Lord is gathering the saints from the four corners of the earth, He's also gathering the saints, the Hebrew saints, from all corners of the sky. People like Daniel. Listen to this verse, Daniel 12, verse 1. There will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation, since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Daniel 12, 13, God says specifically to Daniel, but as for you, go your way to the end, and then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. 
So this is a great ingathering, regathering of Israel, prophesied by Daniel, prophesied even further back than by Daniel. Les and I were praying this morning, and he spoke this verse. It's a it's a favorite of Les's, and it just it clicked. It hit me. Jacob talked about this very thing. Jacob, the, the father of Israel, Jacob, who God named Israel. He said in Genesis forty nine verse ten, as he's placing blessings on all of his sons, and he has his hand now on Judah, his son. And he said this, listen closely, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And unto him shall be the gathering of all the people. What you just read in verse 31 is it. It's the gathering of all the people unto Shiloh, unto Messiah, unto the Savior, Jesus Christ. Now with verse 31, Jesus finishes this concise chronology of the end times with the gathering of the elect. Now he issues the clarion call to readiness. Verse 32. Now, learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize he's near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now we've talked a lot about the connection of the fig tree to Israel. It is a national symbol. Kind of in the same way that America has the eagle, Russia has the bear, Canada has the maple leaf, France has the french fries. It's that kind of idea, you know, that Israel has the fig tree. Hosea chapter 9 verse 10 says, I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit. Oh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say France is, you know, french fries. It's french dressing, actually, is what it is for France. Hosea 9 verse 10, I saw your french toast. Would anybody go? We'll leave it at that. Hosea 9.10, I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree. There are numerous verses throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, that indicate the fig tree as a symbol of Israel. And so we read this verse. Learn the parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and it puts forth its leaves. You know that summer is near. It's another prophecy of the fig tree, Jeremiah 8.13, prophecy of judgment where the Lord says, I will surely snatch them away. There will be no grapes on the vine and no figs on the fig tree and the leaf will wither and what I have given them will pass away. And that was pre-Babylonian captivity. Pre-all of the struggle that Israel has had down through the years following specifically their rejection of Jesus. You may recall back in Matthew 21, we, we talked a few Sundays back about Jesus cursing the fig tree. An odd thing to do until you recognize the connection of the fig tree with Israel. And the placement of it in the gospel, in the time frame of what Jesus was doing. He curses that fig tree immediately after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And his rejection by the Jewish leaders. It's just after that that he curses the fig tree. And the curse, I believe, is a picture of a people who would be fruitless for the Lord for generations because they rejected their own Messiah. But the fig tree gang is the greatest prophetic sign of our entire generation. If anyone asks, why do you believe this end times prophecy stuff? All you have to do is say, why does Israel exist as a nation? It should not be. No people group driven out of a country have ever lasted beyond 200 years and remained and held on to their national identity. Israel did. The people were without land for 1,893 years before finally they were brought back in in that miraculous moment. 
Isaiah 66, verse 8, Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Shall a nation be born all at once? God says, Shall I bring to the point of delivery and not give birth? And Israel did become a nation in one day. It was born all at once. Overcoming seemingly insurmountable odds, on that day, May 14, 1948, the fig tree put forth its leaves. And Israel was born a nation again, exactly as Jesus said it would. By the way, if you want to find out a little bit more about that, um, there's a prophecy update on the web on Matthew 24 called Figuring This Generation. And I mention that because I don't have time to go into this tonight, but in that teaching we talk about how the Lord foretold not only that the fig tree would blossom, but the exact year, the exact month of the exact year that it would happen, May of 1948. And you can listen to that and find out that on your own time. Verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What generation? Well, there are three possibilities. Possibility number one, the generation alive at the time Jesus spoke these words. No doubt some who heard this, no doubt the apostles thought, oh, well great. You know, this is all going to happen before we die. And I wonder if while James was being martyred, if he thought, I missed it. I thought it was going to be this generation. I wonder if Peter, when he was being Crucified tradition tells us upside down if if that thought ran through his mind. I thought it was going to be this generation. That possibility can't be it. Again, if you go back to Matthew 24 and just read through what has to first take place, including all the signs, the birth pangs, the tribulation, the abomination of desolation, all those things did not happen in that generation. And so, that's not a possibility here. By the way, one of the things that would happen in that generation if Jesus was talking about all of this was the visible, tangible return of the Son of Man to set up His kingdom in Jerusalem. Did that happen? No, it did not. So that's not a possibility. We'll throw that one out. Two more possibilities remain for what Jesus means by this generation. The second one is this. The generation alive at the time of the budding of the fig tree. Our generation. The generation that saw Israel... Blossom again in 1948. That's a compelling one. That all these things would take place. That this generation would not pass away. The generation alive at the time of the fig tree would not pass away before everything talked about here would take place. In fact, following Israel's stunning return to the national scene, Bible prophecy buffs the world over got very excited. And they grabbed calendars and they grabbed calculators or slide rules, whatever they had. And they began to try and calculate a generation from 1948. Sometime within this generation, when will that be? And they went back to the Word of God. And they found Numbers chapter 32, verse 13, which says, The Lord's anger burned against Israel. And He made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until the entire generation of those who had done evil in the sight of the Lord was destroyed. 40 years! A biblical generation! 1988, the church was abuzz with the possibility of the return of Jesus that year because that's a generation, 40 years. You know what happened in 1988? Well, that year ended the Iran-Iraq War, a war that left 1.5 million people dead. An earthquake rocked Armenia that year, killing 60,000 people. Sounds like birth pangs to me. 
Libyan terrorists blew up Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland in 1988. Over 200 people died in that terrorist attack. And Michael Jackson's bad hit the top of the charts. The end had to be near. I mean, talk about compelling evidence. But Jesus didn't return. He didn't come. The year came and went, and prophecy experts were driven back to the Word of God. This time they read Genesis 15, verse 13, where God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. Then in the fourth generation they will return here. 400 divided by 4 is 100. Oh, so a biblical generation is 100 years, which means... 2048. 2048. As the time of the return of Jesus Christ. Is that it? I hope it will be a lot sooner than that. 2048. What is this? 2009 right now? Another 39 years? I can't wait. I'm not going to wait, Lord. <laughs> i got to be careful with that because they'll go, okay, come on home right now. <laughs> Boom. Listen, this is really important because I've, I've been excited about the possibility of 2048 or sometime before then, sometimes still within the generation that saw Israel bud, the nation reborn. But don't get all hung up on 2048. We are not date setters. The Bible's very clear. Jesus says there in verse 36, of that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. He's the only one who knows. You might might have caught that. Jesus says not even the Son. Now there's something weird. The Son doesn't know, but the Father knows. I thought Jesus and the Father were one. If Jesus is God and God is God, well then how can the Son not know? Because the Son, gang, when He became human, emptied Himself. I think Jesus does know now. I think once He returned to heaven, He's in the loop. But when He came to earth, He said, I'm not going to carry that godliness. I'm going to lay aside My glory. So not even the Son, when Jesus told these words, He wouldn't be able to tell the apostles because He set it aside. Now I can't say for sure, but I think He knows now. There's something else we should know here about this generation alive. The generation that would not pass away. The generation Jesus is talking about may not be a season of time at all. Number three, it may be a genealogical line that survives to the end. And we're talking about Israel. This Ganea is the word in the Greek. Ganea. It can mean an age. It can mean a season of time. But it usually means a people group. Ganea. In other words, this people Israel will not pass away. Israel will survive until all these things take place. (laughs) Satan, take your best shot. You are not going to be able to rid the world of the people of Israel. Until God has accomplished everything and regathers, ingathers that that remnant of the Jews. Romans 11.29 Paul said, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were once disobedient to God's talking to Gentiles, but now you've been shown mercy because of Israel's disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. So, 
It could be the generation alive at the time that Israel budded, the fig tree became a nation again. It's entirely likely that it could be the, the people of Israel themselves surviving until Jesus returned. Personally, if you want my opinion, and it's just my opinion, I think it's both. I think it's both. I think it's the truth that Israel would not be destroyed and that this is the generation that will see the return of Jesus Christ. Either way, the main message of this parable, the parable of the fig tree, the primary thing Jesus is getting across is this, readiness. Readiness. Are you ready? If Jesus came tonight, would you be good to go? Would you be prepared? Do you have your jumping shoes on? (laughs) Are you ready to be called home? If He says, today's it. Stop listening to Rick. He's gone on long enough. I'm bored. Come on up. (laughs) Would you be ready to go with Him? We talked about the signs game. And it's not just one verse or another. It's the preponderance of the evidence that makes me believe this is the generation. Not just that Israel became a nation in 48. It's the birth pains. It's the deception and the famines and the war and the earthquakes and the pestilence. And it's the increase of all these things that make this pastor say, I think we're close. I think we're very close. Going on in this concept of readiness, verse 37, Jesus says, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. And then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other will be left. This is one of the more controversial passages in Scripture. Lots of opinion out there. I didn't have any trouble seeing what the commentators had to say about this one. Some believe it's the church being caught up in the rapture. One will be taken. One will be left. And so some say that Jesus is hinting at the rapture of the church right here. That's what He's talking about. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says, We who are alive and remain will be caught up. And those of you who are unfamiliar with this, caught up is the word harpazo. In the Latin, it's the word raptus, which is where we get rapture. The harpazo, the catching up, the being pulled away, the being taken out by the Lord. Those who remain and are alive and remain will be caught up together with them, that is those who have already died, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be with the Lord. So some believe Jesus is hinting at the rapture. Others make a good case for this not being the church being raptured at all. That it may actually be rebellious humanity that is being taken away to judgment after the tribulation. Now why would someone believe that? Because the context is interesting. In the context, Noah is being saved and in that verse right there, verse 39, they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. The taking away in verse 39 is not of the saved. The taking away in verse 39 is of the damned. It's of those who were taken away by the flood. Boy, I heard that argument. It set me back on my heels because I've always thought of this as a rapture hint. Well, which one is it? A rapture verse, which is exciting and encouraging, or a judgment verse, which frankly is kind of a bummer. (laughs) Which way does it go? This is one of those moments where I could say, I'll tell you on Sunday. 
but I can't wait. <laughs> Titus 2.13, Paul says we are to be doing two things, looking for two things. He's very specific in this verse. Listen to the wording, Titus 2.13. We are to be looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. My friends, the blessed hope is the rapture of the church. In 1 Thessalonians 4.17, Paul says, Comfort 4.18, comfort each other with these words. It's our hope. It's our great hope as we read about the horror of the tribulation and those things, the judgment that's coming on this earth. And Jesus says, Hey man, pray that you will have strength to escape all these things and to be brought up before the Son of Man. And our hope as believers in Jesus Christ is that His grace poured out through the cross of Calvary does save us and does take us out of the time of wrath that is to come. That's our blessed hope. And we're to look to that, the blessed hope. And, secondly, to the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to read quickly a little chart I shared in the Revelation study, and I will have these for you available. You can just grab this before you go if you'd like to to do that. But I just want you to listen right now. Distinctions. Interesting distinctions in the Bible between the concept of the rapture, that is the church being caught up, and the glorious appearing, that is Jesus coming down. Here are the differences. Listen closely to these. In the rapture, believers are caught up and instantaneously made immortal. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. And this is all right here. In the glorious appearing, however, people remaining on the earth are ushered into the kingdom remaining mortal. They are not glorified. They are not caught up. They do not go up to the clouds. They stay on earth. And the description of the glorious appearing of Jesus is a coming down, not a catching up. In uh, the rapture, Christ comes for His own. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18. He comes for His own. He calls us up. He shouts, Revelation 4, verse 1, Come up here! And draws His people up. In the glorious appearing, Jesus Christ comes not for His own, but with His own. One of the most exciting things in Scripture, 1 Thessalonians 3.13, Zechariah 14.5, Jude 14, Revelation 19, verses 8 and 14. Rick, why are you saying this if you're going to hand it out anyway? Because people are going to listen to this. All those verses indicate Jesus returning and us coming back with Him. We get to come back with Him. The rapture. At that time, believers are judged. Not for salvation, but for reward. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Revelation 22.12 I'm coming and my reward is coming with me, Jesus says. But at the glorious appearing, the nations are judged for kingdom entry. We're going to see that next week, Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. In the rapture, only those who are caught up will see Him. In the glorious appearing, every eye will see Him. These are two very different things that are described in the same scriptures. In the rapture, this happens before God's wrath, 1 Thessalonians 5.9. In the glorious appearing, it happens after God's wrath, Matthew 24, verse 29. The rapture happens without reference to Satan. Satan doesn't even know what's going on. It's going to catch him by surprise, which I think is great. One moment he's going to be going, kill the Christians, kill the Christians. The next moment he's going to be going, where'd they go? Where are they? (laughs) Has nothing to do with Satan. But at the glorious appearing game, Satan is bound and chained up for a thousand years. In the rapture, we meet Jesus in the air. In the glorious appearing, Jesus sets foot on the Mount of Olives. Now those who believe, 
that there is no rapture, that we're not caught up, it, it doesn't make sense because it's rubber band theology, bungee cord theology. We go up to meet Jesus and come right back down. As opposed to what the Bible teaches, that we go up and are tucked away with Jesus during that time of tribulation before returning with Him. In the rapture, we go to a place prepared for us for the short short term. John 14, verses 1 and 2. Jesus is preparing a place for us in heaven. Why would He do that if He was going to set up a a, a thousand year reign here on earth? Because that place is being prepared for His church, His bride, for our honeymoon. In the glorious appearing, Jesus sets up and reigns over the Davidic kingdom on earth for a thousand years. Two very different events. In the rapture, The rapture is in the Old Testament concealed and in the New Testament revealed. But there are hints of the rapture in the Old Testament, like the man Enoch who walked with God and was no more, for God took him. Enoch did not die. Elijah, who rode the fiery chariot. And I don't know if there are any chariots that haven't been rented out that are available, but when the rapture comes, I'm calling one. Because that would be a way to go. You guys can fly up to meet Jesus. I want to be riding that thing. The glorious appearing is revealed in both the Hebrew Scriptures and the Christian Scriptures. Both the Old and the New Testament talks about the glorious appearing of Jesus. But the rapture, that's one of those secrets that God held to Himself until the New Testament times. The rapture gang can happen at any time. The day and the hour are completely unknown. The glorious appearing can be calculated to occur exactly seven years after Antichrist signs a covenant with Israel. That is a known time. We will know. The earth should be able to calculate, should be able to know when that covenant is signed seven years and Jesus is coming. And yet, no one knows the day or the hour. Well, the day or the hour of what? The rapture of the church. Now again, I'll make this available to you afterwards. Hand this out. You guys can take that and look at the scriptures and consider it on your own. See what you think. Now there's plenty of biblical evidence pointing to the rapture, the catching up of the church, the drawing out. So this passage here in Matthew 24, it it doesn't make it or break it for me one way or the other, whether this is being taken away to judgment, those who reject Jesus, or being taken up before the tribulation. doesn't make that much difference, but I still personally lean toward this being the rapture. Let me tell you why. A couple of things. You guys doing okay? Okay, you guys wanted to talk about the rapture. I was going to save it until Sunday, but no. (laughs) Two things to note about this. Very interesting. First of all, the setting. The setting that Jesus is talking about here implies a sudden surprise. It implies a sudden surprise. It's an unexpected taking out. Two, Two men in a field. Two women grinding at the mill. One is suddenly just gone. And the other one's left. The other one's just gone. And and the other one's left. And it sounds like people doing just common everyday things when suddenly the person next to them is taken away. Do you think anyone's going to be working in the field or grinding at the mill at the close of the Great Tribulation? Do you think there's going to be just everyday common life happening in the last three and a half years when God is pouring out His righteous wrath on the earth, when there are hailstones, a hundred pounds each? Falling from the heavens, do you think people are just going to be out there tilling the soil? Do you think people are going to be marrying or giving in marriage or eating and drinking and making merry as Jesus indicates happens when suddenly something happens unexpected? The world is going to be rocking in a horrid way when the Son of Man comes in great glory in the clouds. 
I believe the whole world, based on what the Bible indicates, is going to be caught up in this just massive terror. But Jesus says one will be, two will be in the field, one will be suddenly taken. Two will be grinding, one will be suddenly taken. It would be like in the days of Noah when common everyday life was just going on and suddenly, boom, the flood came. And it was an unexpected event of sudden occurrence. Something that no one sees coming. Verse 42 says, Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But I've got another reason for believing that Jesus is hinting at the rapture of the church here. For not only does the setting imply a sudden surprise, but get this, the Savior employs a significant word. He changes His words here on us. And because of the blandness of our English language as compared to the wonder of the Hebrew language or the Greek language, both very colorful, He changes words on us and we didn't even know it. The word Jesus chose in verse 39 where He says the flood came and took them all away is significantly different than the words He chose in verse 40 and 41 where He says one will be taken, the other will be left, one will be taken, the other will be left. The flood took them all away. It's the Greek word, aero. Aero, which means to take away from the living or to cause to cease as in existence. Jesus uses that word in John 10.18 where He says, No one has taken it away from Me, Aero. No one's taken it away from Me, but I lay it down on My own initiative. He's talking about His life. No one pulled My life away from Me. That was My call. That will be My decision, He says. That's what happened in the flood. They were taken away. They ceased to exist, at least in the flesh, Their lives were taken from them violently. But when Jesus says one will be taken and the other will be left, He changes words. The Greek word there is paralambano. Paralambano is a combination of two Greek words. Welcome to Greek class 101. Lambano means to take. Para, listen to this, para means with. To take with. When He says one will be taken... One will be left. He says, one will be taken with. Literally, paralambano means to take with, to take unto, to catch hold, or to receive something transmitted to yourself. To bring something to yourself. But there's more evidence here. There are three other times that Jesus specifically, or the Bible specifically, uses that word, paralambano. Listen to how colorful this is. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Paralambano, the taking of a bride. Take your bride to yourself, Joseph. Matthew 17, verse 1, tells us six days later, Jesus took Paralambano. He took with Him Peter, James, and John, His brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured before them. And His face shone like the sun. And His garments became as white as light. Think about this. When does the bride of Christ, when is the bride taken to be with the groom? When does the bride see the glory of Jesus Christ, the groom? In the rapture. When we are taken to be with Him. But maybe the most telling verse is this one. John 14.3 When Jesus said, I go, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself. Paralambano. I will come take you with Me. And that's the word Jesus uses when He says one will be taken, one will be left, one will be brought, taken with to be with the Lord. 
like the taking of a bride or the taking of his friends up in glory or the taking of us to himself. I believe, personally, Jesus is talking about the rapture of the church. Verse 43. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think He will. Jesus comes as a thief, but only to those who are not alerted to His coming. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 2 tells us you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night while they're saying peace and safety. Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We're not of night or of darkness, Paul writes. So then let us not sleep as others do. Let us be alert and sober. Jesus does not come as a thief for His church because His church is waiting for Him. His church is alert to His coming. His church is aware, watching, paying attention. We are not sons of night. We are not sons of darkness. We are not sons of drunkenness. We are people of the light who are living lives aware and looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, alertness is far more than just keeping watch. If it were just keeping watch, you could fix yourself a nice perch atop Mount Erie. Or better yet, go up Mount Baker. Make sure you take a few things with you. Bring your Bible, some power bars, some bottled water. Take some binoculars so you can watch for Jesus and you can sit there. But you know you could do that 24-7 between now and when Jesus comes. Sitting, waiting, wishing. And when He arrived, you could still miss Him. How is that possible? You could still not be ready when He comes. The alertness Jesus calls His people to is also a readiness. Be ready. Okay, how do we get ready? Verse 45. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. And the master here is obviously the Lord. The slave is anyone in the service of the Lord. How do you feel about that? Being a slave. If you don't like that word slave, let me read you a a little verse here from Romans chapter 6. Paul says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So either way, you're going to be a slave. You're either a slave to sin which holds you in a very dark place and you're a slave to righteousness which makes you free. That's the kind of slavery that I am down with. But notice what this slave is doing. The slave that the master finds doing what he should be doing when he comes. He's alert and he's behaving in the right way when, when the Lord comes. He's feeding the house. He is giving, he's in charge of the household giving them their food at the proper time. This slave is providing for needs of those around him. This slave is offering the bread of the word. This slave is serving. Let me put it this way. Christianity that is inactive is not Christianity. 
You can call yourself a Christian all you want, but as we talked about recently, if there is no fruit in your life, if you can't see the fruit of the Spirit, if there's not fruit that is growing in your life, call yourself whatever you want to. If you heard the old thing, going to McDonald's does not make you a hamburger. Any more than going to church makes you a Christian. It's not what you say you are. It's, it's what you do. It's the fruit of your life. Now, I disagree with a lot of the liberal emergent church theology that's out there, but there is one thing with, that I completely agree with that is preached in the emergent church, and that is simply that faith must be active and engaged in the world. Right on. Right on. Rather than sitting around talking about it, it's less like to say looking at the back of each other's heads. True Christianity is active and engaged and involved and serving. And that is the servant when Jesus comes that He'll be pleased with. That's the one that that Jesus will say, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your Master. We'll read that parable next week. Faith has to be engaged. Active to truly be faith. Paul said in Romans 12, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, your spiritual service of worship. Be active, be engaged. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We're called to that, gang. Living sacrifices. Using whatever resources we have in our lives for the sake of the kingdom. For the sake of serving. That will make you ready for His coming. Serving and watching. Watching and serving. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 4.6, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. But I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. That picture gang of a drink offering is very cool. They would take the drink offering and they'd pour it out onto the altar, which oftentimes would be very heated up. And you know what would happen to it? The second it hits the altar, it turns into steam. It vaporizes. And that's the picture Paul gives of our lives of service. I'm being poured out like a drink offering. You know, when I hit the altar, I'm no longer even there. But the offering has been made to the Lord. Living lives of service. Lives that are actively engaged in this world, doing something that makes a difference for Jesus, even simply speaking His name. However, well, going on, verse 47, He says, Truly I say to you, He will put Him in charge of all His possessions, which means the servant who's found faithfully serving gets a promotion. If you're faithful with a few things, Jesus will say, I will put you in charge of many things. And there's a great promise here. And it jives with the rest of Scripture. That those who serve well now will have a unique and better position then. What are you talking about, Rick? Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Revelation 1 says the same thing. Revelation 5 says the same thing. The indication that those found faithful are going to rule and reign with Jesus in the Millennial Kingdom. You will have a position in His authority, in His government. If in Christ you are saved by grace, which is the truth, your role and responsibility and your rewards in His Kingdom will be directly affected by what the Master finds you doing when He comes. There will be many people saved by the skin of their teeth. 
And they're not going to have a whole lot of responsibilities in the kingdom. Oh, it'll be great to be in the kingdom, but the responsibilities will be few. Jesus indicates those who are faithfully serving will be given great responsibilities in the kingdom as part of His royal government worldwide. Okay, so Rick, you're saying Jesus is coming look busy? That's the gist of it? I'm saying Jesus is coming. Be faithful. Now, I wish I could stop right there, but we've got to finish this chapter. Read verse 48. But if that evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time, and begins to beat his fellow slaves, and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour when he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm going to end tonight on a disturbing note. Didn't want to do it on Sunday, couldn't avoid it tonight. The judgment here is not toward the general populace of rebellious humanity. The judgment here, gang, it is toward the slave who knows who his master is. This is the slave who knows. It's the slave who assumes the master isn't going to return anytime soon, so whatever. It's the slave who beats and mistreats those of the household of God. Let me tell you how you beat and mistreat people in the household of God. You assume assume the worst about them. You make judgments about other people. You mistreat them in your heart and in your mind, and unfairly you talk about them and gossip about them behind their backs, as happens from time to time. And when I hear about it, I've got to tell you, it ticks me off. Especially when I do it. It infuriates me when church people beat and mistreat other church people. We are not to behave that way toward each other. We are to love each other. That is the call on our lives. To love each other such that the love is so huge that when the outsider looks inside, they say, wow, God is there. But when churches are backbiting and fighting and mistreating and beating each other, you can't see God's love in that. It's the slave who'd rather drink with the drunkards than drink the water of the Spirit of life. <laughs> Peter put it this way in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. If they, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if they are entangled again in them and are overcome, that last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It's happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Wait a minute. My theology says once saved, always saved. Yeah? I'm not sure that Peter's would concur. At least not the way we think. Now, I believe in the security of eternal salvation. We've talked about before. Jesus says, My Father has grasped, has, has you in your hand, in His hand, and no one can snatch you out of His hand. That's eternal security. Once God has decided to save you, He will not let go. But that doesn't mean you can't walk out of His hand. And I do not believe God is going to drag anybody kicking and screaming into the kingdom of heaven. He won't do it. The gate will be open for you to enter. You are saved by His divine will, and yet... I believe you can choose to walk away. Why do you believe that? Because Peter said, 
if after they've escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and they are entangled again in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. I want to talk to you about something just for a moment here. I know the hour is late, but hang with me. Would you say America as a nation is more or less ready for Jesus to come? (laughs) So we concur on that one. I got two articles this week. Shocked by the first one and blown away by the second because they both dealt with the same thing. The first one was in Useless USA Today. March chapter 9th. And it's called Redrawing the Map of American Religion. Let me just read you a few little excerpts from this. When it comes to religion, the USA is now a land of freelancers. The percentage of people who call themselves some type of Christian has not increased. It has dropped 11% in this last generation. That is in the last 18 years. Christianity in America has gone down 11%. The faithful have scattered out of their traditional bases. The Bible Belt is less Baptist. The Rust Belt is less Catholic. And everywhere, more people are exploring spiritual frontiers or falling off the faith faith map completely, which is a recipe for deception. He goes on to write this uh, survey they did. See, American Religious Identification Survey. It's the second one done. First one was done in 1990. This is now the second one. And it finds that despite growth and immigration that has added nearly 50 million adults to the U.S. population, almost all religious denominations have lost ground since the first survey 18 years ago. More than ever before, people are just making up their own stories of who they are. They're saying, I'm everything, I'm nothing, I believe in myself, says Barry Kosman, survey co-author. Among the key findings in the 2008 survey, so many Americans claim no religion at all. It was 8% of Americans who claimed no religion, no faith in 1990. In 2008, 15%. It has almost doubled the number of Americans who just, they don't have any faith. This category now outranks every other major U.S. religious group except Catholics and Baptists in a nation that has long been mostly Christian. The challenge to Christianity does not come from other religions, but from a rejection of all forms of organized religion. Kosman concluded from the 1990 data that many saw God as a personal hobby. And that the USA is, I love this, a greenhouse for spiritual sprouts. Translated greenhouse gas, if you know what I'm talking about. Today, he says, religion has become more like a fashion statement and not a deep personal commitment for many. The ARIS research also led in quantifying and planting a label on the nuns, not N-U-N, N-O-N-E-S. That is people who said none when asked the survey's basic question, what is your religious identity? Not all nuns have made such a philosophical choice, most just unhooked from their religious ties. Diane Mueller, 43, of Austin, who grew up Methodist, says she's simply totally disengaged from the church and the Bible too. Sunday mornings for her family mean playing in the park, not praying in a pew. Ex-Catholic Dylan Rossi, 21, a philosophy student. Well, there's your problem right there, Dylan. In Boston and Massachusetts, a Massachusetts native, he said he's part of the sharp fall in the state's percentage of Catholics from 54% to 39% in the last 18 years. Rossi says he's typical among his friends. He says if religion comes up, everyone at the table is just mocking it. In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, Peter wrote. 
The nuns are now 15% of the population. This aspect of the article said these people are not secularized. They're just not thinking about religion. They're not rejecting it. They're not thinking about it at all. Arpad Toth of Keene, New Hampshire, who is active in the Humanist Association of New Hampshire, Vermont, proudly says he never taught his three children anything more than the fantasy of Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. As far as Toth knows, none of his children, his six grandchildren, or four great-grandchildren scattered from Utah to Rhode Island has ever gone to church. I read that and I thought, man, that's, that's, that's disturbing. We're losing ground in America. Praise God, other nations are gaining ground and Christianity is still the fastest growing faith on planet Earth. But not here. I received a second article. This from Brian Young. Email this. Brian often emails me interesting articles and he sent this one along. And it's uh, from the Christian Science Monitor, a man by the name of Michael Spencer writing the following. Just listen to a couple more things here. We are on the verge within 10 years of a major collapse of evangelical Christianity. This breakdown will follow the deterioration of the mainline Protestant world and it will fundamentally alter the religious and cultural environment in the West. Within two generations, evangelicalism will be a house deserted of half its occupants. In the Protestant 20th century, evangelicals flourished, but they will soon be living in a very secular and religiously antagonistic 21st century. This collapse will herald the arrival of an anti-Christian chapter of the post-Christian West. Intolerance, excuse me. Intolerance of Christianity will rise to levels many of us have not believed possible in our lifetimes, and public policy will become hostile toward evangelical Christianity, seeing it as the opponent of the common good. You know, it's amazing. As we go to meet with the hearing examiner on Friday, just for the right to gather together and meet in this barn and worship God freely, I think about us being seen not as a good presence on North Whidbey Island, but as the opponent of the common good. And those days are fast upon us. He says many of you, millions of evangelicals will quit. Thousands of ministries will end. Christian media will be reduced, if not eliminated. Many Christian schools will go into rapid decline. I'm convinced the grace and mission of God will reach to the ends of the earth, but the end of evangelicalism as we know it is close. Why is this going to happen? This is what I'm asking. He's making all these predictions and I'm thinking, what's the deal with this guy? What a naysayer. And he points out some things that are very interesting. Evangelicals have identified their movement with the culture war and with political conservatism. This will prove to be a very costly mistake. And I agree. I'm politically pretty conservative. But you know what? I'm a Christian first. And I act on my faith first, not on what my party says I should do or who I should vote for, or what I should agree with. And I'll tell you one thing, in the area of greed, my party has not done well at all, which is as important to God as many other issues. He says, we evangelicals have failed. This is, young people listen to this. We evangelicals have failed to pass on to our young children an orthodox form of faith that can take root and survive the secular onslaught. When I see you guys in the front row, sitting here at a very in-depth Bible study that some adults are having trouble tracking tonight. (laughs) I'm kidding. (laughs) But when I see you guys here, I praise God because you're getting grounded in truth. And far too many churches are throwing their teens into youth group fun and games 
and programs and excitement and flash with no sound doctrine. And because of that, our kids are going into colleges, not our youth group, John, you guys are doing great. Our kids, <laughs> our kids are going into college and they're getting hammered by secular teaching and they have no answer, so they're getting ripped apart. And he's absolutely right. He says, third thing, there are three kinds of evangelical churches today. Consumer-driven megachurches. Okay, that's not us. Dying churches. <laughs> that's not us. And new churches whose future is fragile. And maybe not because of the church. Denominations will shrink, even vanish, while fewer and fewer evangelical churches will survive and thrive. Despite some very successful developments in the past 25 years, Christian education has not produced a product that can withstand the rising tide of secularism. Evangelicalism has used its educational system primarily to staff its own needs and talk to itself. Ouch. The confrontation between cultural secularism and the faith at the core of evangelical efforts to do good is rapidly approaching. Watch this. We'll soon see that the good evangelicals want to do what we want to do, the good we want to do, will be viewed as bad by so many, and much of that work will not be done. Look for ministries to take on a less and less distinctively Christian faith in order to survive. That is tragic. Ministries becoming more secular in the way they look just so they can keep doing their ministry. And all the while letting faith go right out the door. We've already seen it in things like the YMCA, Boy Scouts of America, that were sound Christian organizations. But to remain alive in these times, in this day and age, they got to shut the faith thing down. they got to you know, quiet that down. And so the faith is dying because of it. It says the money will dry up. That was pretty blunt. He goes on to talk about what will be left. I'm just going to read something at the very end of this. I know I want you to hear this. Despite all these challenges, it's impossible not to be hopeful. As one commenter has already said, and it's my new favorite quote, Christianity loves a crumbling empire. What happened in the first century? Those were hard times for the church. The church did not have the resources. We did not have the, the music and the radio and the television and the media that the Christian church has today. We did not have those things in the first century, but the church flourished. The culture all around them was as secular and pagan as it gets, but the church flourished. And it can and will continue to flourish if people of faith will live by their faith. And will not, as Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power for salvation. To all who believe, to the Jew first and also the Greek. And if we live our lives that way, then man, we have hopeful days ahead. He writes, I'm not a prophet. My view of evangelicalism is not authoritative or infallible. I'm certainly wrong in some of these predictions. But is there anyone who is observing evangelicalism evangelicalism in these times who does not sense that the future of this movement holds many dangers? Along with much potential. Birth pangs, contractions. They're more frequent, they're more intense, and the world is wide open, and the church is wide open for deception. How do we avoid that? What do we do in light of all these things? We feed the master's household. We remain faithful as servants, and I'll tell you whether there's five people faithful on Whidbey Island, or 300 people, 
or 5,000, if we will remain faithful, the Lord will move. Feed the master's household. Give them food. The Word of God. Give them drink. The Spirit of life. All at the proper time. And gang, don't forget this. Verse 44 tells us, For this reason you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think He will. Let's pray for a moment. Jesus, I guess we have one of two options here. We could be scared to death or we could be excited beyond all measure. And I choose the latter. The times are darker and they're getting darker. And we should not be surprised. You told us ahead of time. But Father, I am asking tonight for an outpouring of Your Spirit on our fellowship here and on Christians in North Whidbey Island and Fidalgo Island Island in Skagit County, an outpouring of Your Spirit so strong that we will all be these faithful servants. That we will place a high priority on the Master's household. Lord, that we will not beat and mistreat each other in this house. Father, I I pray for the young people here among us, our teenagers, that they will be so sound and grounded in Your Word that when they hit their secular colleges, they can turn the professors around. I pray, Father that we will be so filled with Your Spirit that people will be drawn to what You are doing, Lord Jesus. And Your glory will be greater and greater in this place. And Jesus, You call us to readiness. You call us to alertness. Oh Spirit, call us. May these things be rumbling around not just in our minds. Lord, get them out of our heads and into our hearts so that we will be people motivated to love, to bring the Gospel, to be strong in the Word, to be deep in our compassion for a hurting, dying world. We thank You, Jesus, for Your words on on the Mount of Olives. Thank You that they are as impactful to us tonight as they were 2,000 years ago. And we pray until you come, you continue to draw us forward to your word by your spirit. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.